0: Welcome to Good People, Cool Things, the podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today's guest is Dr. Rob Bell, a mental toughness coach who's worked with all different kinds of athletes from golfers to Olympic medalists to synchronized national champions. They're all using his teaching as part of their preparation and getting out there on the course, on the field, on the arena, wherever they're playing. And if you're not inspired by the end of this episode, I don't know what to tell you. We're doing our best. We're we're laying it up for you because Rob has so many great stories of overcoming tough moments in his life, of athletes overcoming tough moments in their life. And they all are encapsulated in his book, Puke and Rally, which is available now. He's written six other books, all on sports psychology, overcoming challenges, and basically being a better version of yourself. And I think you'll learn lots. You'll have a lot to take away from this episode. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so in a couple different ways. Follow Facebook or Twitter at Podcast, or shoot me an email joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. You can also support the show via the merch store. Hit up goodpeoplecoolthings.com and then click the shop button. You can get all kinds of wacky, delightful merch. But for now, here's my conversation with Rob. One of your hinge moments was falling off a cliff in college. What was your first thought when that happened?
1: Well, I mean, it was funny, man, because it was like you know I was conscious during the whole thing, um, you know. I mean, it was out there, and it was it was the cause and part of the solution to why I fell. But it was, um, I mean, you know, being conscious during the whole thing, it was like wow, I'm falling, and then just laying at the bottom of it. And the brain does something really crazy because when you're in that amount of pain, like you don't really feel, you know, you're hurting, right? But like you look, your your arm is hanging off, uh, a lot of blood rushing out. You can wiggle your toes, but you're in a lot of pain. And the brain just does something amazing; it just goes into self protect mode, you know. And it's like, um, you know, being conscious during the whole thing, and, and then just uh, having them be able to take me to the hospital. Where my mom is a nurse, and so she's the oldest of eleven Catholic family. Right? No sympathy on me whatsoever, man. <laughs> this happens on a Friday. And I'm back to school on Monday. Wow! And and now I'm that guy, right, walking around limping, limping around campus. Now I'm in extreme amount of pain, a lot of a uh, lot of meds, and uh, and I'm that guy. I'm like, oh my, that's the guy right there that fell off that cliff. And you never want to be that guy. And uh, and they, you know the the trouble with that was then baseball was over. That was the end of sports. Um, and that one then it caused a lot of pain. Um, because my whole identity was shocked, you know, I really screwed up and when you mess up that bad, um, you know, that, that scar tissue, I think kind of lingers, you know, with mentally. So, I mean, how do you deal with that stuff? Well, being a college kid without any coping skills, no sports, you do the same exact thing, man. So you still drink and and use drugs. And that was, uh, um, you know, I wish that was the end of it, man. You know, I, I share this because it's, uh, it's just part of my history. You know, I was a messed up kid, man, knucklehead. And, uh, I was not even in a uh, drunk driving accident then the end of my freshman year. So that happened at the fall, um, drunk driving accident at the end of my freshman year in the spring. And then it was messed up again, man. So it was, uh, it takes me two by four moments to kind of get it. You know, you got to take a two by four, smack it over my head, but, but I survived man. And, you know, nobody else was hurt. And, um, you know, I was just blessed, man, to be given another shot. And I share this one. It's like whatever, whatever the stance is on um, Lance Armstrong. I know you're in Austin, and everything, but it's like he had a, He had a real righteous quote that I remember because this is around, um, you know, in the '90s stuff like that, late '90s. And when his book came out, and one of the lines was, "If you ever get a second chance of life, you got to go all the way." And I remember that at the time, I just thought that was such a righteous thing, man. I never, I always held on to that one because it was like, look, when you're given another shot. I wasn't going to blow it and I felt I was given another shot and uh, I, I certainly wasn't going to blow that one. Man.
0: Awesome. And, and you called that one of your hinge moments, which I think is a, a recurring theme in your writing and teaching and all that. Can you just quickly describe what a hinge moment is and how people can recognize one when they're, when they're experiencing, it? Or, or can they go through something and not realize that's a hinge moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the hinge is you know, every door has a hinge. Um, if we hear about doors opening and closing in life, that's because of the hinge. If you ever hear of like a, a rusty door, it's not the door that's rusty at all, it's the hinge that's rusty. So what the hinge is in our lives, it's gonna be that one moment, that one person or one event that makes all the difference in our lives. It connects who we are with who we're gonna become. But the thing is, is we just don't know when or who that's gonna happen. But the beauty about it is this is. With, uh, with these hinge moments that happen, connecting who we are with who we're going to become, see, we can't know because you can't connect the dots in life looking forward, right? We have no idea how this mystery is going to work out. We can only connect the dots looking backwards and seeing the impact that one person had in our life, that one coach that had in our life, meeting that one person. And so sometimes we don't know the hinge connects till weeks, months, years later, the impact of it. But what I believe in the real importance of mental toughness and our mental wellness and mental strength is that no matter how bad things are, no matter how bleak our situation is or how bad the outcome is, it only takes one, only takes one moment to turn everything around, and that's what we're really getting ready for. But we've got to be prepared for those moments because when our moment hits, it's too late to prepare. Now I share a hinge moment about a cliff because tragedies that happen in our life, they're immediate hinges because from that moment on, everything's different. Mm-hmm. A significant injury, death of a loved one, cancer. I mean, real tragedies that happen. Most of our lives are just big inconveniences, but the tragedies that happen are are immediate because from that moment on, everything's different. And then we really recognize those hinge moments. And then it's a, just a different kind of game.
0: As far as, I guess, the mindset shift that they can cause, have you seen, you kind of touched on this a little bit of like, it can be several years like that, but are people then able to point back to it and be like, that was it. That was when everything turned around.
1: I think that's a big part of it because we got to be able to, you know, um, a a life Boy, I'm going to mess up that quote, man. I can't believe it (laughs) because I haven't used it in such a long time, but it's like an unexamined life is not worth living. You know, we have to be able to, I think if you do it kind of on a consistent basis, I think you can make those hinge moments stronger. You meet somebody, um, six months later, they contact you. Right? I mean, that's that's a possible hinge moment. So it's like you know, I always look at it in terms of the relationships because the relationships, those hinge moments are the ones that are going to last. Um, you know, we're going to have the catch of the ball. We're going to have you know the deal that goes through, the deal that doesn't go through, you know, the putt that goes in, those sort of things. But it's the people that we meet at those appropriate times. So that's where I think it's like, you know, being able to cultivate those relationships and keep those relationships going because we have no idea when they're going to need you. And, and that's the part, man, I just look at it. So I think it's, it's an introspective journey and exercise that we do on a constant basis, being able to look back and say, hey, what were, what were these moments that happened? Look, a lot of the, the hinge moments are painful moments, right? The time I made a mistake and I lost that deal, I lost that game, and now I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Hinge moment. You know, I, uh, working with the athlete here, one of his hinge moments, and, and we're talking about it, is going 0 for 5 with five strikeouts. Ooh. And this isn't like a Little League player. Like, I mean, this is a professional baseball player, man. But we're pointing at that moment because the point is, is like, look, that's as worse as it can get. It can't get any worse than that mm-hmm. when it comes to the game. And it's not about the setback. It's always about the comeback. You're going to have other opportunities in that. So what did you learn from it? And then you can look at it. It's like an autopsy. We do the autopsy and then we bury that body. And so that's, that's a part where I look at it. You know, those hinge moments can really be big teaching lessons for us.
0: Awesome. I just had a flashback to little league. Once pitchers started throwing curve balls, it was just constant <laughs> strikeouts. Was, I was like, Oh no,
1: <laughs> that was my problem too, man. And so
0: you kind of alluded to this, that there's a lot of pain. And I think that your recent book title captures this super well, Puke and Rally. Yeah. Of there's a lot of pain. There are so many times if you're pushing yourself during a workout where you want nothing more than to just like vomit and pass out. So can you kind of take us inside Puke and Rally and what readers can expect?
1: Yeah. And I appreciate that, man. I mean, the, uh, do we have time for the story about why the book is written? Of course. Okay, you got it, man. That's the best (laughs) part about podcasts, man. If it was a radio show, I didn't have time. Exactly. Um, I was doing my first ultra marathon, and the weather up to that point was kind of in the 40s, and I was training in cold weather and on flat ground. And the day of the race, it was in the high 80s, and it was ultra hilly terrain. I mean, over (laughs) 5,000 feet of elevation. And I got in way over my head and I got dehydrated very early on in the race. Makes sense. A lot of bells and whistles were going off early that this is a problem. And I get to mile 20 in this ultra marathon and I get up to the, uh, you know, the aid stations, they're kind of like tailgates, right? Just without the alcohol. You can have anything (laughs) you want, man. And I sat there and I'm looking at that Gatorade that looks really good. And of course I got to have that. And I got to have some of those pretzels and the potatoes and the M&Ms and the Twizzlers because I'm not in a good spot and I need something to make me feel better. And I just consume and consume, try throwing it in neutral where I can. But once you hit that dehydration spot, once you go too far, nothing's really going to help you. You know, you have to be able to shut it down. So, of course, I kept going. Uh, four miles later, I was going to meet my family, and I get up to the top of the hill. This is how bad I was. Is my my wife and kids like they knew something was wrong because I wasn't at the checkpoint? Mm-hmm. They hike down this massive hill, and I see them. I'm sitting there, right? I'm sitting there. I <laughs> like, all right, man, you just got you know, 500 yards. You just got to get it going. I mean, high 80s, man. I mean, it was not a good spot. And I'm like, when I see them, I'm like, okay, just keep up with them. And I see him, I can't even keep up with him, man. I can go maybe 20 yards at a time and then I'm sitting back down, you know. And when I get up to the top of that hill, everything, everything comes up, you know, projectile vomit. I don't mean to gross out any readers, you know, but look, we've all puked. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those instances where my kids see their daddy throwing up, have no idea what's going on, and the skies open up. And so we'd retreat them to the car, you know, they were there. And, um, And that becomes an an important part because the skies open up, it's dumping rain. I'm opening the back door, puking, closing the door, looking at him crying. You know, my (laughs) wife comes in she says, you know, know, I, I dropped you out. And I couldn't argue. You know, my eyes are sunken in, man, purple lips, everything. Not a good spot. And we go back to the cabin. And on the way back to the cabin, my son says to my wife, you mean daddy had to quit? See, in our family, you do not quit. Like that is the thing. Like whatever you start, you will finish. And I'm in the shower, got the uh, the chills, you know, the dry heaves. I pass out. Probably about half hour, forty five minutes. I kind of wake up and still not in a good spot, but I kind of was able to eat something, have some water. They're taking a nap by this point, you know, and it's late afternoon. About an hour and a half had passed, and I remember his voice. And I go to my wife, I wake her up. I said, "We're." we're finishing this race. She thought, she thought I was kidding. <laughs> and she saw my look. I said, we didn't come here to paint. That's always the thing what we say, right? We didn't come here to paint. We came here to finish the race. She took me there, um, dropped me off and you know, I completed that race. And that was the point. You know, a lot of people got on me about it. It was like, you know, that something bad could have happened. And you know what? Absolutely could have. And I'm not saying that we need to put our bodies in jeopardy. But the fact is, is this became an analogy for life because we all are gonna puke. We're all gonna have these setbacks, financial crisis, cancer, again, death of a loved one, uh, getting fired, missing the shot. We're gonna have major puke moments in our life, but not everybody is gonna be able to rally. And when I could put together those pieces, and we heard it, right? You hear the cliches, man, fall down seven, get up eight. The Mm -hmm. thing that nobody tells you is how bad that hurts. You get knocked out. It is painful. When you fail, it's painful. It hurts so bad because it goes to the core of who you are in your soul, right? You put everything you have into it and it gets ripped out. I don't know anything that's more painful than that. And so that is what prevents us from being able to rally. And it's past any kind of cliches. It's being able to identify those puke moments that are actually gonna help us. So puke and rally, it's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. And that's the whole attitude and philosophy. I think that if we adopt that heading in, then the worst thing that can happen to us really just becomes these moments that we're gonna be able to rally. And what I believe is that if we never give up, that we will be successful. That's the guarantee. And I I know that to be true, man, because I see it too often. And the reason why is because it only takes one Hundreds of no's, hundreds of rejections. And then that's that's what the book all became about, man. Is people that puked in public, in the public eye, that had the worst kind of failures, and they came back and they made something of themselves, man. They came back stronger than what they were. And the thing is, is once we puke, we enjoy the rally even more. Something mm-hmm. comes easy to us, how much, how much joy is there? And I can keep talking about it, man. But that's that's the premise of the book, puke and rally, man. It's not about the setback, it's about the comeback.
0: Awesome. And I imagine part of that too, is having that support system around you in your case, your son, if you were on your own on that, you might have just been like, "I feel miserable, I'm tapping out, but it was his words that triggered something inside of you,
1: yeah, no question man, and that was um and that has been the big motivation you know for my life man is is to be the model for you know my wife and kids, man, and that's that's you know I tell them all the time we're the reason why we train, the reason why we get after, it, especially in the pandemic is um you know, that's how we do it. That's how we operate. And you all push me and I push you and, but we're a team, we're a family. And this is preparation for moments that are going to be tough. And that's, that's the biggest motivation for sure, man. I wanted them to be able to model and see it. And, you know, i got a hundred mile or it's coming up this year and, you know, I want them to see what's possible. And I think if we can model those things, cause we, we very, rarely, rarely scratch the surface on what's possible and what we can do because our mind puts limits on it naturally does that right because it wants to keep us safe Mm -hmm. i want to be able to bust through man and and i think you know being able to model those behaviors are the biggest motivation for me man
0: you mentioned the pandemic and how you're you're still keeping up with everything during it have you found with the athletes that you're working with that they have that similar mindset if they want to keep training they want to keep working for when their sports eventually do resume uh, or in some cases they already have resumed yeah um or has it been a little more difficult because I'm thinking I uh, like the NFL might not start on their, their regularly scheduled season. That's still kind of up in the air. I know baseball and basketball, uh, have their, their start dates set, but there's still a lot of unknowns. So has that affected their sort of mindset and, and way they're approaching stuff, or is it pretty much
1: staying uh, yeah. stand
0: par for the course?
1: <laughs> well, I think, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a small piece of their teams, right? I'm a small piece of it. And I totally admit that. But being a part of their team, I became very important. And it was a big reminder from them that you can't go on what ifs, You know, we don't know dates, stuff like that. Because when you do that and you start playing that game, you're on a mental roller coaster. So the only thing is, is your preparation today. What are we doing this week? What's in your control? What do you need to get better at? Regardless of when you're gonna be returning to competition. If you can adapt that mindset, then it's the practice and the process that becomes so much more important than any kind of product that we're going to get. You can fall in love with that process and your preparation. That's what I think, man, they did such a good job about is, you know, we don't know when the next one's going to be. So are you going to prepare for it today? And that becomes the tough part, right? Because, man, a couple weeks in a row, man, yeah, absolutely. You need to put the schedule in there about when you need to put the breaks in there, you know, when you need to put those rests in there but then that becomes scheduled. It's not like, okay, I just don't feel like it because Mm. then the mind's the one that's dictating whether or not you're going to be training hard and you keep attacking and they kept attacking and it's going to reap the benefits, man. No question.
0: One of the sports that kind of has gotten underway a little bit is golf, Yeah, uh, which is you're you're heavily involved with that. You've caddied uh, over 20 events on pro golf tours. So I need to know what's the best course that you've gotten to to walk on or play on even,
1: you know, the best course I didn't caddy. I mean, obviously it was Augusta national. I mean, the masters Mm. spent the entire week there and I'll be there this year. Um, but I don't, I don't go as a spectator only go in, you know, a domestic capacity, being able to work and, Mm -hmm. you know, professionally, that was the best week of my career, man. Um, you know, being able to ride up Magnolia lane, this is how awesome it was because it is the one event that lives up to the hype. It is hyped up so much and it definitely lives up to the hype. This is how cool it was, man. We got to ride up Magnolia Lane every morning. And the very last day we're all going our separate directions. So my golfer had made the cut and, and finished, you know, 21st at a great event. I had to go in general parking that last day. That's how an amazing event it was, man. I was like, <laughs> oh man, dude, I got to do a general parking. Um, but Augusta National with without question man and I mean there's just so many you know the office when it comes to golf man is just such the cool part you know i'd say uh one of the best courses i probably caddied was probably the greenbrier you know the old white there in uh, in west virginia that's mm. an incredible course incredible track and and uh the feeling that you have there is great man
0: awesome do you have a least favorite course from from uh maybe just one where you didn't hit as well as you would
1: have liked, man, I was caddying <laughs> a hinge moment that I had was the very first event that I caddied and my golfer is playing really well. And we come up on the ninth green, the second day of the tournament and he tosses me the ball and I grab the ball and thinking that I'm the man and all that stuff. I kind of get caught up in the moment and the ball drops in the bag. I reach out, I grab the ball and I toss it to him. And then we walk, he makes the putt. He's in first place. Wow. Second day of the tournament though. Mm -hmm. We're walking on the 10th tee box with nine more holes to go. And I kind of stopped. It was a feeling of dread that overcame me there, Joe. And it was like, wait, that was a Callaway 2 blue circle, right? And he wants to know why I'm asking him. He looks, it's a Callaway 4 blue circle. I handed him the wrong golf ball. Mm -hmm. Rules of golf are very specific, man. You have to start and end each hole with the same ball. You can do anything you want with that at the end of the hole. But the rules of golf also say you call all penalties on yourself. We call the rules official over two-shot penalty. Now I've made mistakes before, man, in my life, right? I already shared a couple <laughs> and I never felt as small as I did at that moment. So that was the most painful experience caddying, wow. but that became a huge lesson in terms of responding, not reacting when, when people make mistakes. That was a big one. Yeah. Man. I can tell that story for like 10 yeah. minutes, man, but I want i to be respectful <laughs> of you and your time, you know, but that was, that was a big one, man.
0: Hey, you can, you can expand as much as you need to. You know,
1: I'll basically say this, right? He doesn't say anything to me for that next hole. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine how bad I felt. I mean, the, the negative voice that was in my head, man. I really I wanted to set the bag down, mm-hmm. go to the car, go home and kill yourself. That's how bad I felt at that moment, you know what I mean? Because it couldn't get any worse. How could you be so stupid, Rob? How can you make such a mistake? Yeah. And he doesn't say anything to me for that whole next hold still doesn't say anything to me. And then the whole after he kind of looks at me and says, look, man, he says, I need you. He says, we're going to get that shot back, but either you can't do this mental game stuff or the sports psych stuff, or either you don't believe it, but I don't care, man. I need you. And I remember it was like, all right, man, I can, I can do it. I'm in, you know? And it taught me the power of man, when we got to interact with other people, especially our athletes is we got to respond. Don't react. Our reactions are usually incorrect somebody cuts you off in traffic, my reaction is going to be incorrect. If I react, fire off quick email, react on Facebook, right? Social media, man, if I react, it's going to be incorrect. People are doing that a lot. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Nowadays. Yeah. (laughs) But if we respond, then I delete that Facebook post. I never even post it, right? I don't send the email. I take the deep breath, cool, calm, and collect. If you think of a first responder, that's somebody trained to handle these situations, and that's the part it taught me that biggest lesson right there, man is respond, don't react and now, sharing that, I still mess up, right? Mm-hmm. I still mess up, and the only thing is is hopefully I mess up less than what I do next time because I still have bad reactions, man, I still mess up, and that's a part about mental toughness that i'm is probably my weakness, but I think that's a big part of it, man is can you respond, don't react and that was the lesson I got from that one, man.
0: <laughs> I like too that. I was thinking like when he's not saying anything like that's almost worse. Like if he had like said like, Hey, you screwed that up right away on that 10th hole. He's like, Hey, you screwed that up. We're going to move on. You would have had that response even sooner, but it was like that silence. And I think that goes back to having that team and communicating amongst each other so that you're not gnawing. Cause I've been in situations like that too, where I'm like, I know I messed up and the other person's just not saying a word. And I'm like, it's just, yeah, it's gnawing at you. But then when they finally say something, even if it is just to like yell at you, like, hey, you really screwed that up, but it's like, we'll overcome that. But by acknowledging it, it almost kind of takes you past it. It's kind of that, the start of that rally.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I see it a lot, man, with, with businesses too. You know, if <laughs> why do we keep digging up the body of the mistake? We do the autopsy. And I think in in your point, you know, the communication piece is big, man. We've got to be able to communicate it the right way. I'm not saying I'm great about it because when I, if if people close to me make a mistake, man, I definitely retreat because I don't want to lash out, you know, and I know if I, if I say anything, it's going to lash out, it's going to be incorrect. And then I'm, I'm adding to it. So I let them know about, Hey, this is my response when bad stuff happens. And it's nothing with you, right? I just need to be able to take that time. And I think being able to coach them up on how we respond when bad stuff's going to happen and and knowing ourselves at the same time. I think if we talk about that in non-stressful environments, then when it does get bad, we've already kind of prepared for it. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, Rob just needs the time. He's going to be okay. And, um, you know, I see it a lot with businesses is they just keep digging up that body, that mistake, once you do the autopsy on it and you bury it, I don't see many people digging up the bodies and keep looking at it again and saying, hey, why did we make this mistake? <laughs> you let it bury. I mean, you let it You let it stay buried and you got to be able to move on from it. And I see it a lot of times with businesses, man. They really do. They get hamstrung by the mistakes that have happened and they can't get past it.
0: And is there a way to kind of train themselves to not do it and and not get caught up on that? or Or, you know, kind of a even if it's just like a mental activity that helps them out like that?
1: Well, I think it is, it's being able to go through some worst case scenarios and you know, if this happens, this is going to be our response to it. And you know, Jeff Van Gundy, one of the uh, Hall of Fame coaches said this one to me, and I really enjoyed this one. He said, we always talked about stressful situations and non-stressful environments. And so the most important thing is gonna be protecting the mission. Nobody is more important than that mission. You gotta protect that mission. And so you know, people's feelings in those kinds of situations aren't really gonna be important. But what happens is what I think is it always comes back to the debrief. If we can't debrief it, if we can't look at it and say, hey, okay, what, what went well, what didn't go well? And it just gets kind of get back to business. Then there are things that don't get resolved. And that's why so many teams look at film. We look at film, and then we move on from it. That's the only way we're going to get better. And that's the power that I see is always going to be in the debrief from coaches, from business owners, whatever it's going to be. And I just think proactively being able to look at worst case scenarios and what's going to be our response to it. How are we going to react to that stuff? I'm sorry. See, I even messed up. Right? I always say reaction. (laughs) How are we going to respond to it? And it's it's only I think when we prepare for those moments that hey it's okay we've prepared for this um what's going to be our response how we move on from it
0: i think that segues nicely into something else i wanted to chat about which is something you've you've written uh several articles on the yips which i think are a just a fascinating subject in general so for folks that don't know what the yips are can you quickly explain what they are and then how can someone overcome them
1: yeah. So the yips are an involuntary flinch or freezing usually happens in the putting stroke, but a fine motor movement, it can happen to dentists it can happen to piano players. So any kind of real fine movement that they have becomes an involuntary twitch um, can happen with uh, drivers of the golf ball. And that's, that's what the yips are, man. And what happens though, is what's important is it's it's the fear of that event happening it and the anxiety of it that they I could possibly freeze I could possibly have you know an involuntary twitch it's that fear that causes it to happen and that's the piece that was always important is if you can overcome that fear if you can overcome that anxiety about it then you kind of bypass it and the brain finds another pathway to make that happen and that that was what the yips are all about man and, and I did that for my dissertation and I this is how cool my dissertation was, man! I got to be at the golf course recording data <laughs> as, as my dissertation, man. You know, that's I knew I picked the right field when I was doing that. <laughs> and uh, the, you know, in a nutshell, though, that's that's what the yips are. Uh, we Good. always we we overcame it by being able to find the strategies to overcome that that deep rooted gut feeling of of fear and anxiety that was going to happen.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, thinking of. I know Nick Anderson uh, of the Orlando Magic is an off-cited example of this where he missed four free throws in an NBA finals game and then just like plummeted as a free throw shooter and I think that was my first I think that was the first time I had heard of the yips and yeah ever since then it's just it's so interesting to me cuz I think even if you don't play a sport like you can totally relate to that of freezing up when you do something maybe you're given a speech or something and it might not be the yips by definition, but you're like, this is a situation I don't like to be in, and you you have to overcome it. Yeah,
1: you know it's it's really funny that you mentioned Nick Anderson because I uh, I cut that article out. I still have that article because mm-hmm. you know he started seeing sports psychologists. I mean that was early '90s, man. I was I cut all those things out, um, and I wanted to see you know because Nick Anderson was an incredible player, and I was really looking forward. He was going to be speaking at a conference a couple years ago, but couldn't make it. And I was looking forward to that, man. Cause I was like, I, I, I brought that article with me
0: yeah. and
1: uh, it did it, but it affected the whole game because then he stopped driving to the basket. Mm-hmm. And he stopped driving to the basket. He settles for jumpers, outside jumpers and his whole game changed. But uh, it does, man. It's uh same thing The you know, the O for five with five strikeouts, it, it kind of happened there because we kind of get so caught up and stuck inside our own head. We can't get out of it. And um it, <laughs> It's amazing how powerful the brain is. Brain does not want us to be back in that kind of situation, so it's going to shut down, and uh, and we can't really think straight or clearly. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up, man, because that was one of the reasons why I got in the whole field to begin with.
0: Yeah, it's it's just so, yeah, it's so interesting. I I know I keep
1: saying that, but it's just so
0: interesting. Yeah,
1: and and that's why like you know if uh, you know mental coaches are listening and those that really get dialed in, that's why I always thought. Catastrophe theory of anxiety uh, was really true. I, I never bought into kind of you know the inverted U. That I believe you have an optimal zone, right, of being able to function. You know, it's it's a lot of excitement, um, you know, coupled with a good uh, challenge. I believe in that. But what happens is, and that's where Puke and Rally comes into play. Is it's that one mistake that causes an extreme drop off in performance you can't tell me that Nick Anderson wouldn't make at least two out of those four, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the odds of that doing it. And so that's why it's when it, it just, that, that one mistake that we make causes another and it causes another and it's see extreme drop in performance. That's the one that I've seen. And so it's so important for all of us is if we can just overcome that one mistake, we're going to be able to rally. I really believe that, and I know that to be true, man, and that's why all New Year's resolutions, I don't want to say all, 80% of them fail is because what happens, right? Man, we're cruising along. Things are going great. Bam, I miss a workout. Why? Because life gets in the way or I overslept, and then all the past mistakes about ever we made before and we couldn't even do it before all come rushing back, and we say, huh, see, told you I couldn't do it, and then we miss another and then it's gone, then it's done. If we can overcome that one, or we eat that piece of cake and we say, screw it, I blew it, man. We eat the whole cake. It's not the one piece of cake is going to be that problem, man. It's it's the attitude that we had towards it. If we can mm-hmm. just overcome that one mistake, and that's where I think like everybody needs a coach, if they can help them through those kinds of situations, uh, we're going to be rocking and rolling. We really are. We just got to be able to overcome that one.
0: And I think part of it, too, is looking at everything else that was going on like those missed free throws are often what's pointed at as like that ended up costing them the game but no there's a lot more that goes on I think I've watched a lot of basketball so this might be I might be mixing up two games but I think in that same game with maybe a three minutes left the Magic had a fast break and tried to do this fancy alley-oop and ended up blowing it and like if they make that layup then Nick Anderson even if he misses those free throws like that's fine and yeah. I think Like you were saying, like you miss a workout, but look at all the other workouts that you have done and you're like one little setback along the way is not the end all be all like you're saying.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's why I wrote it, man, because I just think it's our attitude of what happens to us, even mentally. And, you know, we were no longer in control. And when we can have others around us, I think that can point out that blind spot. Why is it that we can tell a teammate, hey, shake that man, don't worry about it, right? Need you here. Mm We can't tell ourselves that, right? Why is that? I always think it was an amazing thing. The only thing I've ever come up with is I don't think we were meant to coach ourselves. I think we were meant to allow others to be able to coach us in those kinds of situations because we lack the ability to do that. Now, again, I don't need somebody to coach me up on how to brush my teeth, right? I can do this, but when it comes to people, when it comes to interaction, when it comes to high stressful environments, man, I absolutely need people. Because it's the only time that other people can kind of coach me up and get me in that right headspace I need to be in.
0: And you've certainly done a lot of coaching as well as we've talked about. And and Rally is your—is this your seventh book?
1: Yeah, it's the seventh one that that you've written.
0: So, do you have just a a classic book writing process down pat now, or have you found that the process has kind of been
1: different for each one? I wish (laughs) it got easier. I do have the process, but the thing is, is I wish it got easier. It doesn't get any easier. It gets harder. And the reason why is because. I already said this. I can't say it again. You know what I mean? I can't, I mean, I can't, you know, put the pig in different clothes, you know what I mean? Mm. And so, but the only process I was ever come up with, and this was from Dan check, he was at Georgia Southern. I always considered him to be a mentor of mine because, and I think he's a fantastic guy. I'm getting my master's degree, getting ready to do my thesis. And he addressed everybody and told people this, and this was a little conference. All you need to do is you write one hour every day, mic drop like that's it you turn it into a workout I can't sit and write for four hours at a time maybe some people Mm -hmm. can but if you follow like John Grisham he would write for one hour every day and then would go to you know being his uh, trial attorney I can do one you know if you make it a workout you can show up and do an hour for the workout you show up you sit down you write for one hour every day and there's going to be a couple times where you miss but that part's okay but if you sit down. One hour, hour and a half every day, you leave yourself at a good spot. Before you know it, man, in three weeks, now you've got some progress. 60 days, now you got some progress. 90 days, hey, now you're looking you know, pretty good. And that's the only, I really believe that. If anybody looks for a way to do it, that's the way to do it. Maybe some people can do grind out sessions and ultra marathons of writing, buddy. I can't, man. It's a lonely process. And uh, you go in a bunch of different directions one hour every day.
0: I like that. I need to start implementing that as well, because I'll try to do the, especially if I have a couple different freelance pieces I'm working on, I'm like, yeah, let me block out two or three hours, and sometimes I'm going through it three hours pass, and I'm like, oh, that was awesome, but more often than not, I'll get distracted halfway through, or someone will call me or shoot me a text or something, I get, I'm reading that, and I like that. Treat it like a workout. Yeah, it's a
1: workout, man. One hour. And this is the way I look at it too, man, especially when I'm writing it. It was like, because I get my exercise done in the morning too, you know? So there always became that balance. But when I had to write, man, I mean, I was so excited getting up in the morning, just knowing uh, there's not going to be any distractions and I'm I'm just just writing. And this is the piece too I think is important, is there's not any good writing. There's just good rewriting. So it's not trying to make it perfect, man, and look like the Mona Lisa on the first go-around, man. Just get it out, right? Puke it out on the paper, and then you can, you like this one, then you can just rally going back and saying, boy, that sounded awful, but I get the kind of the point. How do we polish that up and make it sound better? No good writing, only good rewriting.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. There's many times just looking back at the first draft, and I'm like, oh, this is not good, but you know... The essence of what you're trying to say and you can make it sound a lot yeah. better i i'm trying to think i think it was hemingway would do he would like stop writing in the middle of a sentence so that when he came back the next day he could like get started on it and he he didn't have any writer's block or anything like that That's i don't very... know if i've ever tried that but i like
1: yeah I I'm, I, yeah, like yeah i'm not that smart i mean i can yeah. <laughs> i try to leave myself at a good spot but I think with its no distractions, you can you just power through it, you know what I mean? Because it's like, man, mm-hmm. I just got one hour, I can do this. Short-term goal, right? I can do that.
0: Yeah, I think just leaving the phone, which can be difficult sometimes, of like, hey, what if there's an important call? It's like, what are the chances of that?
1: <laughs> yeah, especially at 5 a.m. in the morning, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing I like to do with this podcast is ask guests a question that they wish they were asked more frequently. And I liked yours a lot of, what's a common theme among successful people that no one thinks about? Oh
1: boy, I'm so glad you asked <laughs> that. And this, it's like I knew or something. Yeah. Every successful person, every person of significance, every one of them was told at some point by someone close to them, that's a bad idea, you can't do it. Don't even try it. It was either that or their circumstance told them you're not good enough. Every, every everyone I've yet to come across. And so why, why is that? Because that became a fish or cut bait moment. There's no ambiguity when someone close to you says, buddy, you're not that good. Mm -hmm. There's no ambiguity when you get cut from the team. And so we either agree with that negative voice or that negative person. And there's probably a little bit of truth to it, right? But we either agree with that or we agree with ourselves. And a lot of people turn it into, I'll show you, you know, that's fine. But I think it's proving yourself right and staying true to that convictions and true to yourself. That's the piece that we have. And you talk about a puke moment, right? Being fired, being told you're not good enough like, what do you mean? I, I've dedicated my whole life to this. Mm. And, and then those become the moments because you can't sit on the fence in that. It can't be like, yeah, maybe you're right. No, it's a, it's an if and or go moment. And that's why I kind of say fish or cut bait, right? You're either going to fish it, you're going to catch it or we're cutting bait and running them. And, uh, and that becomes the big separator. And that's the piece that I've seen of every successful person that becomes a differentiator. Nice. I like that a lot. What, what kind of answers have you gotten?
0: uh for for the question yeah. that people wish they asked more i one of them I'm trying to think of a good recent one one of them said um that uh, or maybe this was for the top 3 but it was top 3 ways to sleep with a cat which i thought was very <laughs> outside <laughs> the box especially cuz number 3 was just kick the cat out of the bed because they take up too much space and are way too hot with their furry bodies uh, so i thought that one was pretty good i i Spoke with a musician a little while ago, and he um, he wanted to be asked more about, like, bad gigs that he's done, uh, which I think is always interesting. I always love asking that, too, for musicians. Uh, is just, like, the worst show you've ever played. Because I think, again, that really lingers with you, and it's like, okay, what can we do next time to avoid that? And sometimes it's nothing. Like, maybe the person running the venue was just bananas and insisted you, like, eat m&ms while you were playing or something you know something weird like that um but it's just i don't know i feel like the stories of failure or yeah. you know something going wrong are a lot more yeah. interesting and i think you can take more out of them
1: you know i mean seinfeld saved that the what people thought of the pilot for seinfeld mm-hmm. and they were and they were all this isn't that good it's not you know it's not going to go anywhere don't don't support it you know seinfeld And the reason why I bring that one up is because if you talk about, like, comedians, every comedian's bombed at some point, right? Every single one of them, man. It's inevitable. And that's the way I see it. If you want to go down that path of of really achieving that full potential, about being the absolute best that you can be, and and living your life's purpose, you are going to puke. And you have to know that it's just part of it. And it's being able to puke and then it's being able to rally and then just keep moving forward from that. If it's that simple, it's just not that easy, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of baggage that comes with it. But that's the where the conviction comes into play. And that's why I love ultra marathons, man, because really all you have to do is just keep moving. But they don't tell you how bad that hurts at mile 80. You know? Oh, man.
0: <laughs> I've done one marathon in my life and that, that was hurting, I would say, around mile 16 i think is when i really first was like oh uh, what have i done but loved it like i i tell everyone at least run a marathon at least one absolutely because it's it's wonderful so maybe an ultra someday but man my knees are like tightening up just thinking about it <laughs> okay so rob you're almost off the hook here all right uh, we like to wrap up with the top three and your i'd love to chat about your top three sporting moments
1: my top three sporting moments yes so not from a client, but just from
0: me. It can be whatever that means to you, whether it's something you've, you've been at, maybe a game or match or something you've been at, something you've participated in. It can be a mix across the board, just three sporting moments where you were like, this is fantastic.
1: Boy, that's a really good one, man. You know, I'm, I'm not a big celebrator. I got to get into, you know, because I'm a, um, and maybe to a default, you know, but I think we, I think I got to celebrate more because I look at things and it's like, man, that's great. Now that's just another bar, you know, And there's always then back to work. I mean, one of the best things was seeing the very first golfer that I'd worked with on a real in-depth basis for about four years and seeing everything that we worked for come through when he won his first PJ tour event. That one was so big, man because he had a big setback and but he was able to come back and, and still win it definitely say that one's still got to be one man because the joy of it from a coach and knowing everything that we've prepared for that the uh um it's it's tough man i mean you know every every one of my ultras has been a puke and rally moment i mean doing an iron man finishing iron man was, was you know i mean that was great um finishing the 50 miler I would definitely say JFK 50 miler uh that was a significant moment because that race went according to plan and when that negative voice really kicked in and wanted me to walk Mm -hmm. I I said screw you man we're out of here you know we're we're, we're running and didn't walk at all in that race um and you know ran a respectable time and ran sub 10 hours I mean, that was good um you know i would definitely say and this one always kind of stuck with me and i know this is back right i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out a little league one nice yeah (laughs) my dog um we had durman Pinschers growing up my dog had died like the day before Mm. and it was kind of one of those things you know as a 12 year old i'm gonna dedicate performance to my dog Mm. and i went out there and i threw a two-hit shutout and went three for three with a home run and two doubles. And the only home run I've ever hit in my life, man. <laughs> and uh that was uh that was one of those peak, peak moments, man. Uh I mean I, I could throw out golf and shooting under par, but it was still, you know, seeing the potential and seeing like that was that was in the zone one of those days, you know, mm-hmm. and just didn't know what it was called then. And uh, I always kind of got back to that one because that was the only home run I ever hit. You know, the cool thing about this and the thing I love about sports is, like, the best moments are you don't even feel it. Like, you don't feel the home run. You don't feel the perfect shot. Mm. A lot of times when the ball gets released from the hand, you don't even feel that. And that's, I always thought that was just such a cool thing, you know. Um, And when you're in the zone, like, you don't even feel that stuff. I think that's the best part about sport, man. That's why I get so geeked about it. Those are my three, man. I'll put those out there.
0: I love it. I love it. Little yeah, league, man. Yeah, little league. It's it's amazing how we still like. I still remember specific little league moments too, and it's just like they stick with you. It's awesome.
1: Yep. Yeah, Do no, you but...
0: currently have dogs now too?
1: Yeah, we have got a chocolate lab, man. incredible nice. dog. Yeah, she's such a great dog. Such a good girl. Awesome. Yeah, love dogs it so much. Awesome. She she goes on the runs <laughs> with the masters. She's done twenty mile oh, wow. runs with me. Yeah. That's
0: impressive. Yeah, I don't I, do it. I, um, I don't do it a lot yeah. with her.
1: Like, I think her comfort zone is kind of like ten to thirteen. But mm-hmm. uh, we're out there at five a.m., kind of on the trail, and uh, she's leading the way the whole way. She loves it. Yeah. <laughs> and then is think...
0: she just sleeping the rest of the day, or yeah, is she? Yeah, she she'll still she'll gotta... take a nap. <laughs> she
1: she'll take a nap until the afternoon, and then she's back up. And oh, then
0: she's ready. <laughs> yeah, running it.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of. Fun.
0: Oh, that's awesome, <laughs> Rob. This was fantastic. There's so much. I'm like, I... when we're done recording, I feel like I need to go conquer the world after this i feel oh, great now awesome if people want to reach out want to pick up a copy of puke and rally or any of your other you're almost up to double digit books now any of your other books or, or read anything else you've written where can they find you
1: well i appreciate that man my website you know it's just it's just all one word it's uh dr rob bell so it's dr rob uh twitter's still my add man i love that one but it's just all lowercase dr rob bell and um, yeah, I got a newsletter goes out every Friday. And, uh, yeah, I just appreciate being on here, man. You do good work.
0: Absolutely. appreciate you coming on. This is fantastic. And, of course, we got to end with a corny joke, as is uh, customary around here. And since basketball is my favorite sport, we'll make a basketball-themed. Uh, why is basketball the grossest sport to play? don't know. Because everyone's just dribbling all over the court. Nice. <laughs>
1: if I tell my daughter that, she's going to say, dad joke.